The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Karuna Jagger. She is the executive director of Breast Cancer Action, where she brings a lifelong commitment to social justice in health care. Breast Cancer Action is a leading source of independent information about breast cancer through one-of-a-kind educational materials, internationally acclaimed webinars, and a strong grassroots community leaders program. Breast Cancer Action is a national leader in the anti-fracking movement and in its Think Before You Pink campaigns, which we'll be discussing today. Ms. Jagger's vision helped guide Breast Cancer Action's adoption of a bold new strategic plan back in 2014 that made health justice central to the organization's mission. Ms. Jagger focuses on women's rights and on eliminating socioeconomic inequities. Welcome, Ms. Jagger. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. It's an honor to be with you. Well, I always like to ask people, how did they come to where they are today? How is it that you came to work for Breast Cancer Action? Well, I was running a different nonprofit in a different field. And at the same time that I was having that career, too many of my loved ones were being diagnosed with breast cancer. And I found myself developing almost a lay expertise in breast cancer. I certainly never expected to work for a breast cancer organization because I really thought of them as those pink organizations I don't know, cheerfully marching and raising awareness. And to me, the issues felt much more serious than that. So when I found Breast Cancer Action, I thought, this is the organization for me. This is an independent watchdog that is a pillar of a functioning democracy, holding the powerful accountable, holding corporations accountable for their role in the breast cancer epidemic, evaluating new treatments, new devices through a patient-centered lens and providing independent information to people affected by breast cancer, and then also working to stop the epidemic before it starts, where it starts, by really looking at the systemic root causes of the disease. So it really has been an honor to be with Breast Cancer Action for more than seven years now. An incredible team that we have here. I could not agree with you more regarding this whole pink ribbon campaign and this movement that is so focused on treatment. And anyone who has either had breast cancer or a loved one that has had breast cancer knows about the pink ribbon campaigns. We've been asked to contribute dollars. We do want to be treated and cured when and if the disease is present. But wouldn't it be better to look at this disease as well as every other disease plaguing our nation through a more public health model or lens where we say, let's go upriver and find out what are the contributing factors to breast cancer and why is it that certain pockets of our population, the underserved populations, for example, don't have the same outcomes as women who have access to healthcare earlier on, better diagnostics, etc. So let's talk about 
the fracking issue because I think this is huge. I have been interested in fracking wastewater, for example, and how it's been used. I know that your organization has also been active in raising awareness. Fracking wastewater is used to irrigate crops. Yes. So our founders, when they first called women to come together in 1990, were interested in the root causes of the epidemic. They wanted better answers, and they wanted assurance that their daughters and granddaughters wouldn't get the disease. So stopping breast cancer where it starts has been part of our origin story, although I do want to add, certainly, as you note, we need more effective, less toxic treatment because too many women continue to die from breast cancer despite all the awareness. And when you look at the chemicals that are increasing our risk of breast cancer, there's some concern that those same chemicals may also interfere with treatments. Breast cancer is a hormone-driven disease. The most common treatments target the hormones. And when you look at fracking, there's more than 700 chemicals that are pumped deep underground under high pressure. Millions of gallons of these toxic chemicals are, are pumped into the earth. A quarter of them are carcinogenic. And about 30% of them are hormone disruptors, which, as I noted, is, a, is another pathway to breast cancer. So you've got these chemicals that are pumped underground. Some of them can contaminate water supplies underground. And then, as you note, a lot of that water comes right back up as wastewater. And now you may have added these heavy metals or other naturally occurring chemicals that have now been released through the process of fracking. Well, there's no safe way to dispose of this wastewater, and it really is a conundrum for the industry. So sometimes the water is put into evaporation pits, and here in California, we're the only state in the nation that allows unlined evaporation pits or disposal pits. Sometimes that wastewater is pumped back into waste disposal wells. And unfortunately, in California, where we have a water shortage issue, it does happen in other states as well, the industry has begun to sell this water back to water districts. And so what we see in California is that Chevron and and other companies will do some really basic sort of cleansing. So they'll skim the oil off the water. They run that wastewater. It's called produced water through walnut shells, which is supposed to absorb the oil. And then they sell it back to the water districts, which dilute that wastewater, that produced water with clean, fresh water, so diluting it, but not cleaning it further, and they sell that to farmers. This means that even organic farmers served by those water districts don't have the option for any other water. If they're buying water from the water district, every farmer in that district, that's their source of water other than, you know, kind of private wells or or other private sources. And there's real concern about the exposures for farm workers who are on the front lines working with the agriculture, as well, of course, about possible contamination for our food sources. So it's another example of do first, ask questions later. And at Breast Cancer Action, we've been working with our partners to call on Governor Brown to stop this process. There was a state-funded study An independent scientist looked at this and recommended stopping this practice. Unfortunately, three years later, it's still continuing. And so we have an active campaign. We're part of the Browns Last Chance Coalition 
calling on California's Governor Brown to take action before he leaves office. Not only is California a major oil-producing state, it's our most populous state, and it's our number one food-producing state. So you've got an active oil-producing state that is producing the food that feeds the country. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I live in the Midwest, and I know that if I go to my grocery store and I want to buy, say, organic anything, there will be some, maybe, vegetables that are bought locally from local farmers. But I would say the vast majority in supermarkets come from California. And I wanted to try to figure out, okay, I want to know the farm where this produce comes from. I want to know if that's one of the farms that accepts this processed water. I mean, you can spend days trying to figure out where the water comes from. Are there farms in California that have voluntarily said, we're not going to accept the fracking wastewater? You know, we're going to give it a fancy name first. We're going to call it processed water. But are there any farms in California that have said, no, we're not accepting that, even if we go ahead and dilute it with fresh water? Well, let me be clear. Not every water district is using produced water. Good. Um, so it's certainly not that every farm is forced to use that. But I think to put the burden on farmers and especially to put the burden on consumers is the wrong tack to take. Okay. Um, whenever we shift, in my mind, whenever we shift the burden to consumers, to try to protect themselves and their families. We're basically, we make ourselves responsible for our cancers and we're creating this impossible task where each of us must now become experts in toxicology, epidemiology, biology. Yeah. Um, and it's too big. It's, it's and, a lot and, of work. And, so I, and I think one of the things that distinguishes breast cancer action is that we really use that information to push for larger systemic change so that everyone no matter what your purchasing power, no matter what your access to information, that no one is forced to try to, again, become their own EPA or FDA, but rather has the opportunity to take action and make an impact that will protect everyone in the country. So what we have done, for example, is, well, I'm sure we'll talk shortly about our Think Before You Pink campaign and, and our one of the previous recent Think Before You Pink campaigns is called Toxic Isn't Tasty. We were calling on two of the largest citrus producers in California, which were putting pink ribbons on their citrus in order to raise awareness for breast cancer. And yet they were using this produced water. Well, as large agribusinesses, they have unique power to call on the water district to clean up the water. So we were not asking them to take just individual action to clean up their own processes. We wanted a bigger change yet. We wanted them to use their power. They have seats in the water district to demand that the water district provide clean water to every business so that even those small farmers that may not have the same clout can be assured that their water that they're buying from the water district is clean. Mm -hmm. So that's typically how we try to frame the issues. And I think we do see some farms who are aware of this issue, who have made pledges, who find other opportunities. But I do think that where we will win is when we make sure that this process isn't allowable and Governor Brown has the ability to do that. And so then we take the burden off of individuals 
off of small farmers and put it where it belongs on our regulatory system to protect all of us. I couldn't agree more. It is so much work as a consumer to try to stay, well, and as a food educator, I feel like it's my Mm -hmm. responsibility to try to stay ahead of the next thing that's going to harm us and let consumers know what they can do. So I think having Breast Cancer Action as a resource to know what are the political steps we can take, because you're right, it's the policy piece that we need to address. And if we can find the person who can make a difference with regard Mm -hmm. to disallowing this kind of water to be reused, then yes, that's where we need to go. So we should let our listeners know that it's www.bcaction.org, and we can get more information from that website, and we'll provide that link to our listeners. Well, not only are you looking at fracking, you're looking at all kinds of environmental exposures and why some of them are more harmful than others, especially at critical times of development. So Fracking is huge. It's a problem. We have an action step, but it's also being aware of all of the other toxins in this big soup in which we live to try to protect our families. Absolutely. So again, we balance the focus on trying to reverse this epidemic with ensuring that people who are diagnosed with breast cancer have access to evidence-based information free of industry influence. Too often, new cancer treatments that are approved at FDA have not been shown to help people live longer. They're approved based on what are called surrogate endpoints, which are, I would argue, the basis to sort of show your hypothesis is sound. You know, they're these preliminary endpoints. But until we know that cancer treatments are helping people live longer or have fewer side effects, and if neither of those two things, the only other way that a new drug should ever be approved is if it costs less and gets in the hands and mouths of more people that need it. It doesn't do one of those three things, improve overall survival, reduce side effects, or cost less. It's not doing anything for patients. It's simply benefiting the corporate bottom line. So too many of these cancer drugs are approved with surrogate endpoints, and we view those as still experimental drugs. And nobody should be charged $100,000 a year and more for experimental drugs that we don't yet know whether or not they help people live longer. Absolutely. And I do want to let our listeners know that you have many webinars where people can go in and they can watch them and learn from them. So you have a great educational library. I just need to let our listeners know that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Karuna Jagger. She is the Executive Director of Breast Cancer Action. And this is truly an organization that is focused on social justice in healthcare. I want to talk about the pink ribbon campaigns and your specific charge to rethink or think before you pink. Tell me about the pink ribbon campaigns and why we need to be rethinking them. Well, your listeners will be interested, since this is the Food and Agriculture Show, that the history of the pink ribbon is... So pink washing is the term that we use to describe companies which claim to care about breast cancer, which are profiting from selling pink ribbon products, and yet those products may actually be increasing the risk of breast cancer. So it's this hypocritical practice that really, again, benefits the corporate bottom line. Well, as I began to say, the history of the pink ribbon will be particularly interesting to your listeners. 
it began as a partnership between the corporation AstraZeneca and the American Cancer Society. Now, AstraZeneca was a merger of, of two large companies, one of which produced a pesticide linked to breast cancer, and at the same time, the company produced the most common breast cancer treatment, tamoxifen. You can see this is a perfect profit cycle. AstraZeneca shows up with American Cancer Society, encourages more women to get screened for breast cancer. Listeners who are interested in the failures of widespread mammography screening can listen to those webinars or read our brochures. But in essence, you put more people through breast cancer screening, more breast cancers are diagnosed, more women are treated. We do nothing, as you note you know, earlier in your comments, to prevent breast cancer because mammograms only diagnose cancer that has already begun to grow. And corporations continue to win. It's a perfect profit cycle. So as more and more companies got involved in putting pink ribbons on their products as part of this push for what's called cause marketing, when companies affiliate with charitable causes to improve their brand and sell more products. We saw companies putting pink ribbons on anything from handguns to handbags and perfumes to garbage trucks and toilet paper. There's no limit to what a company can and will put a pink ribbon on. And as I noted, some of those products may actually increase the risk of breast cancer. So our members and staff were concerned about this in the late 1980s and early 90s. Excuse me, that's actually... The breast cancer awareness month was began in, in the 1980s, but the pink ribbon did not emerge until the early 1990s. And within 10 years, there was such a proliferation that we had launched Think Before You Pink, asking where does the money go? Who's really benefiting? And we have a series of questions that anyone can use to evaluate a pink ribbon product. So the first question is, does any money from this purchase go to a breast cancer organization? Because you'd be amazed how many pink ribbon products don't make any donation to any breast cancer organization. Oh, if wow. so, how much money? Is it enough? Is it, you know, a penny on your purchase? Do you feel that this is actually enough money to make a difference? I have many examples there around cost more to mail the Yoplait lid and the stamp costs more to mail it into the company to generate the donation than the company will actually donate. You need to ask those questions. Does any money get donated? If so, how much? Is it enough? What organization is going to receive the money? And what programs do they run? Is it just more awareness? And is awareness what you think we really need? At this point, the pink ribbon is arguably the most widely recognized symbol in the world, perhaps. Nobody does not know what a pink ribbon stands for, certainly not in the U.S., and the reach is international. Is there a cap on the donation? Some companies will make what looks to be a decent donation at the front end, but they'll donate up to a certain amount of money. And as a consumer, you have no way of knowing if that cap has already been met and if your specific purchase will actually generate the donation. And the final question is, of course, does this product put you or someone you love at increased risk for breast cancer? And there are too many examples of these pink ribbon products that contain chemicals of concern, chemicals that are linked to increased risk of breast cancer. Unbelievable. This gets to the webinar that you had on media literacy, separating hype from hope, breast cancer, media literacy. I am a big fan of media literacy. And because 
These critical questions, critical thinking as it applies to marketing is so important for us as consumers in a capitalistic society to really make our dollars work for us as true votes. I think probably one of the most offending campaigns, and certainly the AstraZeneca, was that the atrazine pesticide that was the one that was produced? I think so. I think that's right. And I also know that Monsanto had a table at an event where there was action for breast cancer awareness. And of course, Monsanto is one of many makers of glyphosate herbicide products where we know that that's a probable human carcinogen. So the contrast between what we think with that pretty pink ribbon and really what that product stands for, we need to be aware of those inconsistencies. But the one that probably was one of the most offensive was the Baker Hughes pink drill bits for the cure. Mm. And those were drill bits that were used in fracking. Is that correct? Yes. I'm so glad that you highlighted those. There are so many examples. So Baker Hughes painted a hundred drill bits pink, not just any pink, but the trademark Komen pink. Komen is the world's largest breast cancer charity, Susan G. Komen. They shipped these drill bits around the world in, in these shipping containers that contained mammography screening brochures for, these are their words, for the rednecks in the field who were then supposedly going to take these brochures back to the women in their lives. And for it produced all these videos and promotional materials. And in exchange for this, they were giving Komen a $100,000 donation. <laughs> so you can imagine how much more it costs to produce the videos, to paint the drill bits, to ship them compared to the donation that they were actually making. So together with our partners, we were able to deliver an extraordinary number of petitions to Komen, calling on them to cut ties with the oil and gas industry. Other examples that might be of interest to your listeners are What the Cluck campaign, calling out the previous partnership between Komen and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, right. They were selling pink ribbons buckets for a cure. Prior to that, we had our Put a Lid on It campaign, which I referenced somewhat, where Yoplait put pink lids on their yogurt. And if you licked your lid, put it in an envelope, and mailed it back to Yoplait, they would make, I believe, a 10-cent donation. Well, unfortunately, at the time, Yoplait was using dairy that was produced with the synthetic hormone RBGH. It's a growth hormone given to cattle. And there's concern about the links between RBGH and breast cancer because it increases insulin growth factor 1, IGF-1. So in any event, Yoplait was using dairy that was stimulated with a synthetic growth hormone. And thanks to our members stepping up and taking action, we were able to pressure Yoplait to con- and Dannon followed suit to commit to not using dairy stimulated with RBGH. Wow. Yeah, there are so many disconnects, and it's so wonderful to know that your organization is out there bringing light on these kinds of hypocritical relationships. So thank you for that. We have about five minutes left for our interview, and I want to give you an opportunity to bring forth any of the good work that you've done in addition to rethinking the pink, especially at this time of year. But are there specific webinar topics, specific fact sheets that you think our listeners should know about that are especially timely? We 
have a really great webinar series on a wide range of topics where we're able to bring national experts to answer folks' questions. As you noted, we do archive those discussions, and I think one that your listeners will be really interested in is a webinar with Dr. Ted Shetler on his book, The Ecology of Breast Cancer. There's several webinars about some of these Think Before You Pink campaigns that we discussed, including our Toxic Isn't Tasty webinar on oil, wastewater, and your food. There's other topics that I know people are interested in the politics of breast cancer, what's hiding in your cosmetic. And I think the last thing I'd like to note is something that you began with, which is we do have a breast cancer epidemic here in the U.S., and it is a public health crisis, but it is also a social justice issue. And communities of color and low-income women are bearing a disproportionate burden of the disease. So additionally, we do have some webinars on reducing inequities in breast cancer and just the importance of race and place and what we can do so that we don't try to perpetuate this effectively like trickle down of, of health care. We know that at every stage, low-income women and women of color suffer worse outcomes and have worse care as it relates to breast cancer. So those are some of the webinars I hope your listeners might be interested in. Of course, I would encourage people to sign up for email so that you can hear about our upcoming webinars and be part of the conversation. When you join, you have an opportunity to ask questions of these experts, and they'll answer your questions. I have listened to the webinars. They are excellent. They do provide a community listening opportunity. And I want to mention something about the ecology of breast cancer and environmental cancer risks. And one of your fact sheets talks about the myths behind breast cancer. And I think for far too long, we have focused on genetics. Yes, there is a genetic risk. But for so many women who get diagnosed with breast cancer, they will say, you know, I didn't have anything in my family. And that gets back to what kinds of environments do we live in? And your good comment about women of color, low-income communities, where we are more likely to see waste sites. We are more likely to see toxins in those environments where people are, they have less of a voice. And so that's where we see those environmental chemicals doing the most harm. So working on policies, certainly, to address the environment they not only help breast cancer, but those same chemicals that are endocrine disruptors that result in breast cancer also affect prostate cancer for men. This affects all of us. Birth defects in children, we know women who live close to fracking sites are more likely to have children with birth defects. So even though this conversation has been about breast cancer, I think it's much larger and it reflects back on your mission to look at social justice in healthcare. We just happen to be talking about breast cancer today. Thank you. I do think that breast cancer is a really important, it's quarter million women will be diagnosed with breast cancer each and every year. And it's an important opportunity to connect the dots across issues. And when we take care of the breast cancer epidemic, we will also be able to take care of so many other uh, important and connected issues, including other diseases and disorders that have similar origins and, and similar issues with inequities. 
the emphasis is on prevention. And yeah. Breast Cancer Action is the site for learning more about that. Well, in closing, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Karuna Jagger, Executive Director of Breast Cancer Action. And we will provide a website to find the webinars and fact sheets, www.bcaction.org. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Melinda. It was really wonderful to have such a wide-ranging and yet deep conversation with you. 